Hello and welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. We want to close out the year strong. So with today's episode, which we know you will thoroughly enjoy, we want to throw you a couple classic moments that involve some holiday cheer, including the night the Freebirds turned on the Von Erics at Christmas Star Wars, as well as the night the BWO took over Times Square and Santa Claus ate a super kick from Big Stevie Cool. So sit back, relax, enjoy some holiday memories, courtesy of the two-man power trip of wrestling, as told by ring announcer Mark Lawrence and the Blue Meanie himself. So stay tuned. Have a happy holiday. Hey, he's going out the door. Here he comes. Ric Flair again. Oh, Kerry Butter hit in the head with a cage door. As Gordy threw it too, and Kerry Butter smashed by the cage door, leaning over the rope. I don't know, that cage door slammed into his head. Kerry, shaken. Battered, certainly have the match won. Michael Hayes lost his composure as a referee on both sides. And now Ric Flair is in the urgency of the moment. Carries eyes half closed. He seems to be in terrible shape. And Ric Flair just pounding away. Well, the Freebirds came to the Dallas office as, as baby faces. Uh, won the crowd to their side. They were complimentary of the Von Erichs and teamed with the Von Erichs. And that big change from babyface to heel uh, all came about at a big wrestling Star Wars event at Reunion Arena. Uh, Michael Hayes was an incredibly animated individual, but his off-the-apron manner, his charisma, his flamboyance, his psychology made him so incredible. And so while the cage door showcased that well, anytime Michael was allowed to run free and be Michael, it was exciting. And so often in our office, it was the heels who had more personality than the baby faces did. Made them a lot more fun to be around in terms of the excitement and entertainment of it all. Here's Santa Claus's helpers, ladies and gentlemen. A day or two ago, I thought I'd say... D-W-O! 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 Oh, oh, hey, sorry. Uh, come on. Uh, uh, okay. New York City, man. Let's, let's go check out the tree. Oh, the tree's cool. Very cool. Oh! B-W-O! 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 Shut That's what you get for not getting me that toy train when I was nine. Film, it's called, you know, in the movie business, they call it running gum. You just go film thing, leave, you know, to get around permits and stuff like that. But Santa Claus wasn't a wrestler. He was just a street performer. And we were walking around filming stuff all day. And we're sitting there like, well, what should we do? We're sitting there with, you know, our hands on our head, you know. You know, go, oh, man. Well, we got, you know, we got the ice, you know, the ice rink. We got the, this. We got this guy comes over in a Santa suit, Spanish accent, taps us on the shoulders. I want to be on TV. Like, ah, yeah. And the funny thing is about that Stevie kick, that was the second one he gave him. That was a, that was a second taker, and he did the, you know, I'm dating myself with this reference, but he did the nasty plunge right on the concrete mm-hmm. floor. Google it, YouTube it, nasty plunge. But he did the nasty plunge right on the, the concrete, and we're just like, we're settling. We're like, is he getting up? Is he getting up? Is he getting up? And he got up, he went, 
<laughs> yeah. But yeah, he wanted to do it. We did it. And it's fantastic. You know, WWE, you know, uh, every Christmas they put that up on their YouTube page and stuff like that. And, uh, it, it's just one of those random things. You know, Paulie says, come up to the studio. We're doing something. Okay. Where are we going? Times Square. All right. 10 degrees. So cold that I have to pull my socks up to have some part of my body just covered. <laughs> it was 10 degrees. Um, I remember we were walking around. We were in front of the, the ice thing doing our deal. And people were looking at us like we're... Imagine today. We would just There's no way we'd get close to those places in a post-9-11 world. <laughs> but... Um, uh, the, the karaoke guy really got mad. I'm sure Meanie told you about that. He was mad uh, that we knocked over the box. Remember I grabbed the microphone, BWO, BWO, yep. knocked oh, it yeah. over, and he was like, what the fuck are you doing? And he was all mad. <laughs> uh, then the Santa Claus, I didn't expect him to take a, such a good bump. Uh, he was a Mexican Santa Claus. Did Meanie point that out? That was the funniest yeah, part of it all. Yeah, uh, he did. We gave him 20, we gave him 20 bucks. He, he got kicked, and he ate the kick, which I didn't want him to do. I even said, please don't. Because I had, used to wear, like, military boots with the wrestling soles. I, I just went to, like, an old Army-Navy store, bought $10 boots, and put the soles on them. And, you know, they're pretty heavy boots. And he, uh, he took it like a champ, and he took a bump. And he was fine. He got up, hugged us. He was excited. I wonder, I wonder if that guy's... Still like shows people at her if he's still around. That's I'm curious about that. <laughs> or if he's still next Santa Claus in New York City. This is the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling, and you are listening to the 2017 Holiday Edition of the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling podcast. And if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. And John, today on the show. We are joined by an author, a historian, a booker, an announcer, a writer. He's done everything that you can possibly do up there in the great north, up in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, as Pat LaProd joins today's program. And if you're not familiar with Pat LaProd's work, you will be by the end of this interview. He is a well-accomplished author. He's a well-accomplished historian who has done so much when it comes to spreading the word about the history of wrestling in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. And that is going to be a giant topic on today's program. We learn about some of the biggest moments from the history of Montreal wrestling. We learn about the different families, the different territories, and the stars that have come out of that Montreal territory that, if you go back and listen to some older episodes of our show, you definitely heard dribs and drabs from some of the people that were up in that territory, like Ivan Koloff or like Jacques Rougeau. You heard them talk about the stories of Andre the Giant being up there and some of the territories that Andre was a part of. And you got to get a little bit of an inside look from the wrestlers, but now from somebody who's done the research and watched all the footage and talked to a lot of the participants, you get Pat LaProd's take on the Montreal wrestling scene. And quite possibly my favorite part of the interview where we talk in detail about Dino Bravo and the impact that Dino Bravo had on the Montreal wrestling world and wrestling community up there. 
and how Pat LaProd looked up to Dino Bravo as one of his favorite guys from the 1980s. And really, when Dino Bravo died in the early 1990s, he definitely left a void in terms of the historical value of Montreal wrestling. But the impact that he had while he was wrestling up there and then moving on down to the WWF was definitely felt for years to come. And as a nice tribute to Dino Bravo, a guy who I was always a big fan of, when we introduce Pat LaProd's interview, you're going to hear Dino Bravo's theme, which is the French-Canadian national anthem. And I definitely want to uh, really thank Pat LaProd for bringing a lot of that Dino Bravo story that we've really never heard a lot of it uh, out in the public, bringing it to light and shedding some uh, extra news to us in this interview that we've got coming forward. And we also talk about the Montreal Screwjob. We talk about Kevin Owens. We talk about Sami Zayn and some of the wrestlers coming through French-Canadian independent wrestling right now. So I don't want to beat around the bush anymore. And, John, I want to welcome you in here now. Tell us a little bit more about this interview and talk about some of these titles we've been discussing and what we have to look forward to in this great chat here with Pat LaProd. Yes, Chad, we're back here at the two-man power trip, and we're rocking and rolling with another episode, and this time with a wrestling historian, the man who has mastered the Quebec wrestling scene. That is, of course, Pat LaProd, and we've mentioned it before, and we'll mention it again. He's a writer, historian, manager, announcer, interviewer, commentator, booker, columnist, author, I mean, my God, he has done it all in the wrestling business. He has worked for the WWE. He's worked for Ring of Honor. He has worked for so many promotions and obviously making a big name for himself in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and all over Quebec and in the Canada scene. Great stuff from him all around. Great interview. It's going to be a lengthy one, of course, because we get some great stories out of him. And we, quite frankly, could have been going all night long because we had so many questions and he had so many good answers. We could just kept going. But for the sake of time, we didn't want to go too crazy. So for anyway, if, as I get into kind of what we talked about in the interview itself, we did talk about his books. I mentioned that he's an author and a historian, covers a lot of the Quebec wrestling scene. Everyone probably knows his book, Mad Dogs, Midgets, and Screwjobs. But most recently, his book, Mad Dog, The Maurice Vachon Story, just came out not only in French, obviously, which you may already have up there in Quebec, Canada, but it's out there in English as well. So for any of you English-speaking fans out there, obviously, you'll be listening to this show right now, we hope. Get out there and get that book. Get it on Amazon. Get it however you get your books. That's some great stuff. He's a wrestling legend. Not only in Canada, but in the United States as well. He also has a book out called The Sisterhood of the Squared Circle, where he covers a ton of women's wrestling, whether it be past, present, or even future. So there is a lot of current stars and a lot of up-and-coming stars that he does talk about in that book, as well as the complete history of women's wrestling. And we do get into women's wrestling, as well as if he thinks that there will be a woman's main event at WrestleMania this year, possibly involving Ronda Rousey. So that's some interesting stuff. If you want anything on DVDs, check out the Golden Age of Quebec Wrestling done by Pat LaProd. That is some great stuff. And of course, in this interview, we do talk about the legends of Quebec, the legends of Canada, the legends of that wrestling scene. We talk about Jacques Rougeau Sr., Jacques Rougeau Jr., Raymond Rougeau, Maurice Vachon, Paul Vachon, Rick Martel, Ronnie Garvin, Pat Patterson, Dino Bravo, Frenchie Martin, and the list goes on and on. We even get to talk some current 
Quebec wrestlers such as Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn, and of course our favorite Maurice. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a little bit of Pat LeBron. Absolutely. And please go out of your way to support Pat LaProd during this holiday season. And as we head into a new year, why don't you look for some of the titles that he has coming your way and maybe something that's going to catch your interest? Because I know after listening to this, if you're not engaged and if you're not ready to learn more about the history of wrestling in Quebec, then we did not do our job. So please enjoy this episode with Pat LaProd. Get ready for a big 2018. And if you're listening to the Triple Threat podcast this coming Tuesday, we have a best of episode featuring some of the greatest rants some of the greatest stories and some of the best moments that we've had on the show so far in 2017 so we're moving forward to a huge year in 2018 and we're getting ready it's so awesome we're also moving forward to the two-man power trip of wrestling's three-year anniversary which is going to take place in early january and oh boy oh boy when you hear who is the guest for the third year anniversary It is going to blow your mind. So please get ready for that and strap in for a little bit of Pat LaProd. So John, as a special kind of music starts to creep in, hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business and get this holiday edition of our show on the road. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno San Martino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, Check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Buff Bagwell, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, TMPTOfWrestling.com. And if you're on Android, please check us out on Google Play or Player FM. And now, without any further ado, he is a writer, a historian, an announcer, a columnist, and finally an author. He is Pat LaProd. Please enjoy.
That's all right. We're we're big fans of French Canadians on this show, so it's perfect. You're a perfect pairing. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, let's get rolling into it right now. And joining us on the line tonight is a writer. He's a wrestling historian. He's basically done everything that you can think of under the sun in professional wrestling. He could quite possibly be our favorite French-Canadian guest of all time, and he is the one and only Pat LaProd. Thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. It's a pleasure, and uh, thanks for having me, guys. Well, you know, there's so much I really would love to talk to you about, but, you know, I'm talking to John right before we even got on the line with you. I'm looking at all the stuff that we could talk about that started, but I remember listening to, I believe it was live audio wrestling about a year ago, and you talking about your Mad Dog Vashon book. And we're going to talk about it now. Finally, into the English translation, just coming out September 5th. Very cool for, uh, for the English-speaking fans to get a chance to read this book. Are you excited that now this book is reaching a whole new level of people? Oh, totally, totally, because, I mean, Maurice Vachon was probably, before Kevin Owens came to WWE, I would say, he was probably the most known French-Canadian wrestler of all time. I mean, most of his career was in the U.S. or, you know, in Calgary, you know, in, in Canada. So, I mean, he spent, he spent his early part of, the, of his career in Montreal uh, back in the 70s for a short period of, the, of time with Drop Your Wrestling. And then, you know, uh, near his retirement uh, in the 80s. But, I mean, uh, in between all this, he was in Texas. He was in, you know, a lot in the AWA in the Midwest. He wrestled in Hawaii, wrestled in Japan. So, I mean, I know, you know, Bertrand, Bertrand Barry co-wrote the book with me, and I knew that Maurice was uh, very well known uh, outside of, uh, of Quebec and that, you know, he, he had many fans throughout uh, North America and, and beyond that. So, uh, you know, we're really excited and, and psyched that, you know, this book is finally out in English. Two years after the French version, but, you know, at least... It's it's out now, so we're very pleased with that. Yeah, it just came out September 5th. It's available on Amazon.com, and it's Mad Dog, the Maurice Fashan story. And, yeah, it was in French, and uh, I've been listening to you promote it since, you, uh, since it came out. So it was really cool to hear you say it about a year ago that, oh, it'll be out uh, you know, next fall, and here we are blinking. It's next fall. And the uh, and the book is out in English, but you know it's funny. I know a lot of newer fans. If they don't know Maurice Mad Dog Vachon just by his face and knowing just uh, you know the kind of tough guy he was, newer fans or maybe more current fans will remember that he did get his leg ripped off on a WWF in your house pay per view. So I know that's one thing that at least maybe some more of the uh, the contemporary fans will remember about the Mad Dog. Oh yeah, I mean he's on he's on the network. If you if you guys have WWE Network, you can look up at uh, Mad Dog Vachon, and as well on YouTube. I mean, if you want to see more old-school stuff, like his infamous uh, um, coffin that he was building while talking to Jerry Fadwell, as he would say, I mean, it's it's online, guys, you know? So, I mean, uh, anybody who listens to us right now and don't know much about him, uh, well, the book will give you a great insight on everything that Maurice did, uh, but if you want to watch... Uh, his promos or some of his matches, uh, the network and YouTube are there as well. So, I mean, he, he had, he had an, uh, I mean, such a great career, and it, it was just a no-brainer for us to, to write about, uh, about his life and his career as well. 
Yeah, and we talked to uh, we talked to Bertrand about a year ago, I'd say, when the uh, when his Pat Patterson book came out. And uh-huh. uh, you know, I believe we talked about the the Mad Dog book briefly, but just to get your you know pick your brain about it. So you, you know, he was a great choice. He was a perfect choice. But was that a book that you set out to write, basically from uh, from the inception of wanting to write about professional wrestling, is to give that in depth story of uh, of Maurice Vachon? No, actually, the way the way it happened uh, is uh, we wrote the uh, book on the history of Montreal wrestling, Matt Does, Midgets, and True Jobs, and uh, that was in February of uh, 2013. And there was a French version of it uh, who, uh, that, that came out uh, like in, in October of the same year. And uh, a month later, um, the day that we were supposed to, well, that we did, the day that we were booked at the, at the Montreal Book Fair, it's a big book convention here in Montreal, so we were there with the book on the history of Montreal, the French version, that same day on a Thursday, Maurice passed away. And me, me and Bertrand were getting like so many calls from media to, to talk about the life and times of Maurice. And I mean, it was like overwhelming. Every media in the province of Quebec covered the, 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 the story of his, of his passing. So that same night when we uh, got to the uh, uh, book fair, uh, we spoke with our editors and, you know, we, we, we pitched them the idea of, of, of doing a biography on, on Maurice. And they had seen, you know, all the, the love that fans and, and the media were, uh, you know, that Maurice was, was, was getting, you know, uh, after his passing. And they, they decided to, uh, uh, to give it a shot. And then we published the French version in, in April of 2015. So it really just a, a matter of, uh, of timing uh, that we ended up writing this book. After, after Mad Does Mrs. and True Jobs, we, we honestly didn't add... Uh, didn't have any any other idea about you know what we would do next. We we, we both talked that we would be writing one book, the story of Montreal wrestling, and maybe we would be done after that. And and I mean it's crazy to think that four years later, uh, both of us have uh, you know wrote several books now, and uh, we are not planning to stop anymore. So. So, 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 I mean, it's just a matter of timing. But, you know, it's, it's like wrestling, right? Wrestling is all about timing, and this was as well. We've talked to, on this show, I mean, not, not just Bertrand, but we talked to Carl Ulay, we talked to Ivan Koloff, we talked to Ronnie Garvin, we talked to Jacques Rougeau. So we've gotten a feel for all the people that have passed through Montreal and all the history that we can kind of dig up just by piecing things together and kind of getting the vibe of what Montreal meant to professional wrestling or, or what Quebec meant to professional wrestling. But kind of give, give us an insight as to the professional wrestling scene, when it was in its heyday, and basically it's helped produce a lot of big names that are still relevant today. Obviously Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn being at the top of that list. But what is it about that territory and that area of the country of Canada that has produced such great wrestling over the years? I mean, there were three uh, what we call golden eras of, of wrestling in Montreal. Uh, the period from 1939 to 1964, uh, when Eddie Quinn was the promoter and Yvonne Robert was the local star here. Yvonne Robert was, I mean, was to Montreal in the province of Quebec what Ricky Dozan was to Japan or what El Santo was to Mexico. It was that big of a name. Uh, then you had the 1965 to 1975 
especially at the beginning of the 70s when uh, All-Star Wrestling ran throughout that period of time, which was uh, owned by the Rougeau uh, family, uh, mainly Johnny Rougeau uh, and, and Jacques Rougeau Sr., his, uh, his, his brother. Uh, and uh, Grand Prix was run by Edouard Carpati and the Vachon brothers. And the rivalry between the two promotions were as big uh, for a period of two years that it was between the WCW and the WWF uh, during the Monday Night Wars. Three, you know, talent were switching uh, promotions. Uh, the guys were getting better payoff because of this. There were, like, so many, like, boat shows where it ain't a million, uh, a million people uh, watching, you know, every week on the... Uh, on, on TV, it was just crazy. And then the third period was during the uh, 80s with international wrestling owned by Gino Brito, Dino Bravo, and Andre the Giant. And uh, it was, you know, where uh, Dino Bravo and Rick Martel and the Rougeau brothers um, were king of the mountain. And, uh, you know, that's when WWF uh, came and took all the talent here like they did, uh, you know, pretty much everywhere else. So, I mean, th- those are the three big period, uh, periods, you know, that, that uh, Montreal wrestling really hit, uh, hit it big here. What, what's special about Montreal, I would say, is different than probably, you know, different than any other place in North America is the local stars here are so over. I mean, I mean, huge stars. I mentioned even Robert, but uh, I mean, Johnny Rougeau was probably as as much known as even Robert was during uh, during the 60s and the 70s. And it's kind of hard to understand uh, for for uh, for residents of the U.S. or English Canada. But Dino Bravo was like a god during the 80s here. I mean, I know this is not the Dino Bravo you saw on WWF TV in the late 80s, but, I mean, from 1980 to 1985, when he, uh, 86 actually, when he left, he was, I mean, over like crazy. It was, I mean, he was my favorite wrestler growing up, uh, you know, ahead of Al Kogan, naturally. Uh, so, I mean, it, it was just crazy, and, and that's what's special about Montreal. We are really behind the local stars, uh, or someone who speaks French. Obviously, Quebec is a French-speaking uh, French, uh, uh, province here in Canada, so that's why guys like Edouard Carpentier and André the Giant, who was here as uh, Jean Ferret, uh, that's why they were over uh, so big, because they could... Uh, relate more with the uh, with, with the, the the regular fan here uh, because of the language. So and, and that's also a reason why uh, the territory was not as known as uh, as it was maybe before we wrote the book because a lot of of its coverage was in French and it didn't translate that well to uh, other parts of Canada or in the U.S. So um, so, so so when we were uh, promoting the book, the Montreal book. What I was saying, you know, usually in interviews, what Bertrand and I were saying is that there's a lot of guys who came from Montreal, who were born in the province of Quebec, that many fans in the U.S. or in 
you know, the, the, the rest of Canada knew for years and years and didn't even know these guys were coming from Montreal. And you mentioned some of them. Uh, I mean, Ronnie Garvin, I mean, that doesn't sound French-Canadian at all. Uh, and he, he's a guy who, were born in, who was born and raised in Montreal. Pat Patterson is another guy who was born and raised in Montreal. So, I mean, there's many, many guys that... Um, that really came from this territory and and had you know a worldwide uh, worldwide career like the Mad Dog Vachans and the Jola Dukes uh, and obviously all the way to Kevin Owens and and Sami Zayn which you know uh, are doing great in in WWE right now so uh, I mean there's a very rich history of of wrestling in Montreal the crowds were huge. Uh, we would, you know, back in the 50s or even, you know, in the 70s, they would be selling out at, at the Montreal Forum and, and uh, Jarry Park Stadium and, uh, and all that. And some of the biggest crowds uh, in, in North America were, were held in Montreal, you know, during, their, uh, during uh, the, the, the peak uh, here. So, I mean, it, it's, it's a rich history, and, and Mad Dog Vachon was, was uh, widely part of this. That's awesome. That's a uh, that's phenomenal uh, phenomenal response. Because uh, I I want to get to it in a minute. I was going to say, or go with next. You know who was your guy? But I want to touch back to Dino Bravo very briefly here, because yeah, you're right. We got Dino Bravo in the WWF, and also John and I, being from the Northeast, we were all about the WWF. I mean, we were spoon fed the WWF. Being New York, New Jersey, I mean, that was our territory. So Dino Bravo. Coming in, you know, obviously, yes, we knew he was French-Canadian, and we knew the Rougeos were French-Canadian, and we saw all these guys that were starting to come in. But, you know, as you start to get your hands on certain materials and you're reading about guys, and I remember reading about Dino Bravo and reading what he did in Montreal and saying, wow, this is completely opposite as to what he's doing here in the WWF in America and for, you know, what was now going to be a global company. But my partner, not always being a huge Dino Bravo fan, probably because he didn't get a chance to see what he did growing up. So Dino Bravo, I guess, was your guy as you were a fan, even bigger than Hulk Hogan. But what was it about Dino Bravo that you took to him so, uh, so much growing up? He, he was the powerhouse of international wrestling. He was, he was the top star. Uh, he was the champion for most uh, of, it, of his time there, uh, he, he, he was charismatic. Uh, he, 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 you know, he, he, he would sell for the for the heel during the match, and he would just, you know, power him up at the end and, and win. I mean, he, he, he was a, he, he was such a great. Uh, performer, and he was that big and strong guy. You know, he wasn't the clean baby face like Rick Martel was, or even like the Rougeau were. Uh, but he, he, he was that strong, powerful baby face uh, that you, you just want to be like. You know, so I mean, he he was the one that really hooked me up to um, to to wrestling when I was uh, when I first started watching when I was six years old. And and so you know uh, we always say that you know we our favorite wrestler of all time is always the one that we grew up with or sometimes you know it it's, it it is and to me Dino Bravo was you know he's one of my favorites because of that uh, I mean him and Rick Martel uh, would be booked they were the two biggest singles babyface in the territory one was coming from Montreal Rick Martel from Quebec City 
And I mean, uh, it's pretty much the, 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 the feud between Quebec City and Montreal is pretty much, I don't know, like Boston and New York or, or something like this. And, and, and uh, both of them would have a few matches against each other. And then uh, Bravo would come and help Martel against the heels. So you would have the two baby faces, you know, joining force, pretty much like the Mega Powers did uh, with, with, with Savage and Hogan uh, a few years later. You know, they were, uh, we didn't know about the Mega powers then but they were like our mega powers you know before even the the, the term existed uh and uh so, so i mean bravo was just that huge superstar here and uh and, and yeah i mean he, he was really the total package to a guy like me when i was uh when i first started uh, watching wrestling so and and i mean he had started before that but obviously it was I was too young, uh, but uh, I mean, he traveled. He traveled a lot even before getting to WWF. You know, he he wrestled in the Mid Atlantic. Uh, he wrestled. Uh, I mean, he had that bloody match with Abdullah the Butcher in Japan. That's been, you know, one of the most uh, favorite tape uh, that tape traders were exchanging back in the uh, 80s and early 90s. Uh, so I mean, he he he, he really had. A, a very good uh, all-around career. Uh, it's just, you know, sad that you know when when he, he switched to WWF uh, at the time they didn't use him. Uh, you know, uh, he didn't. How can I say that? He, he didn't really show what he really was when he was in Montreal. And, and maybe maybe that's all right. Maybe Montreal was a special place or was the right place for him to uh to to be that superstar and uh, you know I'm, I'm just thrilled that I was uh, you know able to uh, to see him as such now that's really cool and I got to tell you something I think I might be a little bit French Canadian because I'm also a gigantic Rick Martel fan and uh he's pretty <laughs> much on the top of the bucket list for the guest for me on this show because I just I I love the way he worked in the ring I feel like everything he did was, whether it was a heel or baby face, it looked real. It looked like you were, he was invested, whether it was a character or whether it was just a match. I love Rick Martel, but with Dino Bravo, and not to, you know, to, to bring the dark side over here, but obviously his death being very controversial and very, uh, very brutal. Do uh, you think that, that his death really, t- was that a blow to the uh, French-Canadian wrestling scene? I know he was kind no. of past. Oh, yeah, you don't think it was? You by the time he passed away, by, by, by the time he, he, he was killed, uh, I mean, um, there were no. The, the, the scene was pretty much WWF, you know. It was in 1993. Uh, he, he was, uh, I, I mean, uh, WWF had took over for for a few years now. Uh, I mean, uh, the only French Canadian. Uh, on the big scene where uh, Jacques Rougeau, Pierre Carwellet, Rick Martel was still was still wrestling, uh, but I mean it didn't it didn't affect the scene at all. Uh, but it did affect you know Bravo's legacy because you know obviously as that was related to uh, to 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 the mob uh, and, and to uh, and to uh, um, you know everything you know he was doing here you know it was. Um, uh, cigarette smuggling and all that, and um, I mean, it, 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 you have to you have to 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 see it this way. Dino Bravo was a big spender. Uh, I mean, money was no object for Dino. He had the big house, the big cars. Uh, you know, nothing was 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 big enough. 
Um, he didn't see... He didn't see it coming. I mean, when he was fired by WWF, or not fired, but he was let go, um, he didn't see it coming. He thought he would have that job forever, and he was making tons of money for WWF. Uh, but he was spending as such. So he, he wasn't really good with money. Uh, and uh, when his career was over, uh, well, what do you do? You have a big house, you have a big cars, uh, and you need to make a lot of money and there's not a lot of things when you've been a wrestler all your life that you can really do if you know you don't have any education and anything else his family was mob related his uh, uh his mother uh, his mother's brother was you know one of the you know used to be one of the top uh, guy in in the mob here in Montreal so that was the easy way out for him you know to 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 start uh, dealing uh, uh, cigarettes with with the uh, um, with some of the gangs here in Montreal, and and you know sometimes you pissed off the wrong people, and and you know when you're into that world, you never know where you know where it's gonna when it's gonna end, and you know unfortunately for him, it ended uh, earlier than than anyone would have thought. So you know that that's the choice that the choices he, he decided to. Uh, to make, uh, but you know that's you know that's the 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 backstory behind why he got involved with this in the first place, and you know it didn't last long, unfortunately. Now with Jacques Rougeau and Pierre Olay, who were both former guests of the show, so I kind of want to get your perspective from a historian's you know eyes and, and in focusing on this, the Jacques Rougeau retirement match in 1994 against Pierre, was that as big of a deal as, you know, as looking at it as it seemed to be? Because it seemed like sellout crowd where the WWF didn't, wasn't, you know, selling out. It uh, seemed like a lot of people were interested in that retirement match. Do you, you know, am I remembering it correctly or, or are we hearing history correctly? Was that a big moment in, in Montreal wrestling? Lore? Oh, definitely. Like I said earlier on, timing is everything. When that match happened, it was in October of 1994, and if we remember correctly, uh, baseball was just uh, at just there was there were no baseball from uh, somewhere in August. That was the year of of uh, of the strike. Uh, that was the big year that the Expos would have been in, in the World Series, probably against the Yankees at the time, and it didn't happen because of the strike. So there were no baseball, no no fall baseball, anything. Then hockey was supposed to start, but the NHL went on lockout. So there were no hockey, no baseball in Montreal at that time. So the media needed to talk about something else. Then happened Jacques Rougeau's retirement, and he's facing his former partner, another Quebec wrestler in Pierre Carlewellet. I mean, the media were just eating it so much. Every, every media was talking about it because they needed to talk about something else than the Expos and the strike and the Montreal Canadiens and the lockout. So, I mean, it was just the perfect timing. I'm not saying this match would have not done great, but... I mean, it, 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 it was just a perfect timing because, I mean, wrestling was taking all the place, you know. And Jacques, uh, Jacques is so good to promote himself and to promote the matches 
he, he, he was on, and, and, I mean, he knew everybody in the media here in the province. So, I mean, they did TV, radio, newspapers. It was all over the place. So, so I mean, it ended up doing, uh, if I remember correctly, something like 16,000 people in the, uh, in the Montreal Forum. Uh, and, I mean, that was just amazing because WWF at the time was not doing this. I mean, the, the, the crowd, the Montreal crowd, uh, I think there's only one show in North America that WWE, WWF um, did more than, than the crowd the Montreal uh, Forum held that night. So, I mean, that's, that's just amazing when you, uh, when you think of it. Uh, and uh, at the same time, WCW was, uh, was having a program between Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair, and they were not able to do as much as Rougeau and Ouellette did that night. And, and the funny part uh, is that uh, at the time, nobody in WWF thought that, you know, Jacques was right and that, you know, they would, uh, they would, they would uh, uh, add that kind of crowd in Montreal. The, you know, everybody thought he was crazy and he was talking over his head, but he was not. He knew the territory. He knew that in Montreal we get behind our local stars, and, and we do that in any sports. We, we got behind F1 racing because of Jacques Villeneuve's success in, in, in the late 90s. We got into MMA because of George St. Pierre's success in UFC. We are, <laughs> our people here are really behind their local stars. And we kind of see the same thing with Kevin Owens now, that you know, when he's in Montreal, he, every media wants to talk to him. Uh, so, so, I mean, Jacques knew that. WWF didn't at the time. Uh, maybe they should have, but they didn't. And uh, they should have listened to Jacques. But anyway, uh, the match, I mean, uh, I just look at, at the number. It was close to 17,000 people, 16,800 uh, people at the Montreal Forum. So it was just a great crowd, a great match, a great ending. And that match was supposed to... to uh, uh, propose... Um, to you know to be the next top star in in the province of Quebec that was the main goal of the match as well it was to put over Pierre Carwellet as the next French Canadian star and Jacques really tried his best to do that uh, and his plan coming up that you know such a uh, success was to book the Olympic Stadium and to have Pierre Carwellet in the main event with Jacques in his corner, because Jacques was a better talker than Pierre Carwellet, and uh, against the WWF champion. Uh, I mean, at the time it was uh, it was uh, Bob Batland and it was Diesel, but either way, his plan was to have the match at the Olympic Stadium, because there were never any wrestling done in the Olympic Stadium. I mean, still to this day, because that show never happened, because in fall of 1994, Vince didn't want to go for it, uh, claiming that, you know, they had just lost Macho Man Savage uh, to WCW, and, you know, things were not going great, and he didn't want to do it. Jacques got pissed off, and he, st he straight up told Vince on the phone, well, if I'm not doing it with you, I'm going to do it with Hulk. And sure enough, a few years later, they didn't do the Olympic Stadium, but uh, Wallet and Rougeau worked for WCW, and that's when, in 1997, uh, Jacques wrestled against Hulk Hogan in Montreal and beat him. 
at a time where Hogan was the leader of the NWO, WCW world champion, and he wasn't doing jobs for anybody. He did one non-televised in Montreal against Jacques Rougeau. And, and I mean, they drew a, a huge crowd in Montreal as well. So, I mean, I mean, Jacques knew how to get, you know, what, what kind of match to, to sell here in Montreal. And he, he, he was really good at it. And, and 1994 was a proof of that. And, but, you know, it was the right timing, but Jacques knew it, and he took advantage of it. Now, with him beating Hogan, I remember reading magazines and just being like, completely floored and completely shocked. <laughs> like you said, Hogan, Hogan rarely did jobs, especially clean jobs. You know what I mean? Like, he's just a huge star, and if you're going to beat him, there's certain ways you had to beat him, and you, you know, always keep the Hulkster strong. How did that whole thing go down where Hogan actually jobbed to him clean at the point – in Hogan's career when, you know, he was on top of the world. There were a lot of rumors saying that Jacques had paid extra for Hogan to job or something the like, or he paid $25,000 for Hogan to job. That wasn't the case. He paid $25,000, but to book Hogan, that was his, his price, Safe, you know, plain and simple. Uh, they, they, I mean, Jacques met Hogan. Um, that day, uh, they, they, they had done a press conference the day before and, you know, everything and the day of the show, they sat down. Jacques told Hulk, you know, so what do you want to do? And Jacques told him, well, you know, I'm going to put you over. It's your town, brother. And, and, and that's the only thing that happened there. Hogan understood that, you know, in Montreal, Jacques was, was popular and that the right thing to do was to put him over. It wasn't televised. It was social medias were not... Uh, you know, and even internet was was just you know starting. So, I mean, it, it wasn't a big deal for him at the time to 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 lose to uh, to lose to Jacques, and he just respected. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot also about Hogan respected what Jacques had done to Dynamite Kid uh, a few years before. You know, when you know both of them were with the WWF. Uh, you know, that old backstage incident between uh, Jacques and Dynamite where uh, Dynamite, uh, Dynamite had done a few things to, uh, to the Rougeaus and Jacques decided to, uh, uh, to punch Dynamite one day with uh, a roll of quarters in his hand and just knock the teeth out of uh, Dynamite. And, uh, and Dynamite was never the same after that. And, and, you know, as much as, you know, some people will lie with Dynamite Kid, uh, even more were, uh, were against what he was doing and, you know, bullying everyone, bullying everyone and all that. So he uh, respected what Jacques had done. And, you know, he, he knew Jacques was the, the local star and just put him over. I mean, it was not more complicated than that. And, 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 and we, you know, when we first researched on the book and everything, we thought that, uh, you know, we, we did almost believe all those, you know, fairy tale stories and rumors and everything. And, and we did ask Hogan, you know, did you really, you know, was it your decision to put Jacques? I said, yeah. That, that was, there was not more to it than that. And, and Ogan, it's funny because Ogan became probably one of the most popular wrestlers in the history of Montreal. Probably, probably the most popular non-Quebecer wrestler in the history of, 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 of Montreal, both for his period 
um, with the WWF in the 80s, early 90s, and then when he came back with the WWF uh, after 2001, I mean, uh, it's even on, on one of his DVDs where he gets, you know, when he, he first come, when he first comes back here in red and yellow with the title, I mean, he got an ovation on the SmackDown show, if I, if I remember correctly. I mean, it went on and on and on and on. I think it was five or six minutes that people just stood up, standing ovation, and wouldn't stop. And Ogan, even to this day, talk about it very emotionally because Montreal always was special to Ogan. Uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and it's kind of ironic because back in the 80s, as much popular, you know, Ogan was, in 1986, Vince didn't want Ogan. There was a match plan between Ogan and Bravo, and Vince decided against it because he thought that Bravo would be more popular than Ogan in Montreal. And he was probably right. Ogan would probably would have, you know, come second to Bravo at the time, uh, even though both were very popular. Uh, and they decided against it because, you know, he didn't want his, his, his superstar to, to be second, uh, the second most popular guy on, on a card. And, and that's why, you know, Bravo and, and Ogan uh, never wrestled here. And that's also why Bravo, who was supposed to, to, to jump ship to WWF, didn't do it right away and waited uh, seven or eight months before uh, jumping ship. So, uh, I mean, Ogan and Montreal have a really special relationship, and, you know, all those stories are part of it. Now, obviously, there's so much good coming from Montreal wrestling, but i got to mention, I guess not something necessarily bad, but it's definitely something kind of negative, and it's uh, obviously you've written about it before, but it's the Montreal Screwjob, and mm-hmm. Bret Hart, obviously one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, whether, you know, Canadian, American, Japanese, whatever, he's one of the greatest. What is your take on the whole Montreal Screwjob work, shoot, and did it affect the actual business in town at all? Please. I mean, it was a a shoot. I mean, there's no way that this thing was a work. Uh, It it, it was a shoot. Um, There's, I mean, it's easy... Okay, I'll tell you something. I don't know if you guys knew that there were there was another Montreal screw job uh, back in 1931 here in Montreal between Strangler Lewis and Henri Declan. Um And when you read about that story, but but when you read it in the eyes of someone living in 2012, 2013, when I did the research, you kind of you could say that oh, you know what circumstances and timing and everything, it sounds like, you know, it fit too well in the story for it not to be a work. But at the time, it was a shoot. And, it, and I still believe this was, the, the first screw job was a shoot. But it's easy to, you know, lay back and take a look at it with, with the eyes of someone looking at it 20 years later, knowing everything that happened after that. You know, of course, when you look at you know, how WWF won the war and how Vince became that character after that and all that. It's easy to say, oh, well, you know what? It must have been planned. 
but wrestlers are so afraid to get caught in a, in a, in a work that they they're gonna say it's a work even if it's not. And and I mean to anyone who think it's a work, I mean they're just just wrong. It was a shoot, uh, and and I mean the situation was kind of of weird in the sense that to me, if there was one city in you know throughout Canada that Brett could have lost the paddle, it would have been in Montreal, because even though Brett will tell you that you know he, he, he was he was you know he didn't want to lose in Canada that he was that that big star you know. Uh, you know, ocean to ocean, you know, all, you know, throughout Canada. Montreal is a special case. For Montreal fans, Brett was a guy from Calgary. For Montreal fans, Brett, you know, was an English-Canadian not speaking French, you know? So nobody would have rioted that day if Brett would have lost the title. He didn't want to jump in Montreal. He didn't want to jump in Canada. That's all right. But to me, if there was one town that he could have done it, it was here. Uh, other than that, I mean, of course, it's 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 going to be linked to Montreal forever. Um, I don't see it as a as a bad thing. I mean, I mean, especially today. You know, we're going to celebrate the the twentieth anniversary of that match. Um, um, I mean, when is it? November ninth. Uh, yeah. So, so in in less than two months, and um, and I mean, after everything that happened, you know, and and Sean and Brett, you know, talking to each other, and Brett coming back to WWE and all that. I mean, I don't see it as a negative. It's 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 something that Montreal was always will always be remembered for, and I mean, it's all right. I mean, I don't mind being remembered for one of the most important matches uh, in the history of modern pro wrestling. So, I mean, yeah, that, 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 that's all fine by me. How was business after that? Did business go up after that for, for, you know, for Montreal, or did it stay the same? Like, what was, was it affected at all, basically, from that? Um, no, it wasn't, it wasn't good or bad. It, it didn't really – I mean, you got to remember, at the time, we, we didn't really know, you know – Everything that that we know now, you know, Vince didn't become an instant, you know, superstar, you know, the next day, and 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 I mean, the feud with Austin happened only, you know, a, a few months, and and the following year, and everything. I mean, it it, it, it didn't really change the scene here. Um, I would say that Owen's depth did change in a way that uh, after that, uh, I think. WWF didn't run in Canada for several months, so that affected us more than anything that happened that night between Sean and Brett. Now, as far as Canadian wrestling history and just you know in general, are the Hearts considered the greatest wrestling family? Is it the Rougeaus? Like you know, from a historian perspective, who is considered no, like, the greatest I mean, wrestling family in Canada? In Canada, the Hearts definitely. The Rougeaus would probably come second. Um, there's, uh, I mean, the Vachon family was was 
big family if you if you think of Maurice, his brother Paul, their sister Vivian, uh, Luna Vachon, uh, Mike Vachon, Maurice's son, wrestled as well. Um, um, the Cormiers in in the uh, in the Maritimes were a big family as well. Leo Burke is a Cormier. The Beast was a Cormier, so that was a big family as well. Uh, but yeah, the main two would probably be uh, the Arts and uh, and the Rougeaus. And in Quebec, the Rougeaus are really are really the, uh, the 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 royal family of of professional wrestling. Now, modern day wrestling, obviously, we mentioned a few times Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn, and even to a lesser extent Maurice. You know, mm-hmm. so the Montreal wrestling is still kind of present in present day WWE. Do you guys consider Owen, Zane, and Maurice? Do you consider them, you know, like a part of the, um, you know, part of the lore of, of history, part of it keep going, or do you think that current wrestling isn't kind of considered, you know, as much or as favored as highly as some of these other big names? Because business. I mean, like I said, when Kevin is in town. When Kevin is in town, he's doing the big talk shows in Montreal. You have to understand that we in Montreal we have. In the province of Quebec, I should say, we have a big uh, star system. Uh, I mean, our, our sitcoms, our uh, uh, soap operas, uh, our talk shows are watched by sometimes a million, a million and a half, two million people in a province of eight or nine million people. So that's, you know, a lot of people. That's sometimes... When, when a sitcom is watched by 2 million people, that's almost a quarter of the province. So it's like if, I don't know, 70 million people would be watching a show in the U.S. So, so it's, it's really big here um, because of the language, which, you know, allow, allows us to, to do something completely different than English Canada, uh, who will, you know, most of the times use... Uh, shows coming from the United States instead of having their own local production. So, so it gives us an opportunity to really put over our local stars in any field, whether it's a senior, it's a stand-up comic, it's a comedian, an actor, or whatever. So when Kevin is in town, I mean, all the sports media wants to talk to him, but also the <clears throat> the, 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 the big talk shows, the big radio shows, so, so I mean, I would say that he, he, wrestling is still is still pretty much well covered when there's a guy like Kevin coming over, when there's a guy like Sammy. I mean, and 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 to be honest, that's a tradition that comes from Jacques Rougeau. Jacques Rougeau, uh, you know, and I was talking about it in 1994, but he did that for many many years after that. You know, keeping that good relationship with the media and making sure that, you know, once in a while <clears throat> they would be talking about wrestling. And now that Kevin is on top of WWE, well, we made sure that, you know, and Kevin uh, understood that, that when he's, you know, in Montreal, he needs to keep that tradition alive because he never know when he's going to need it. You know, he never knows when he's going to be, uh, uh, when he's going to need the media to, to promote a big uh, raw event or pay-per-view event in Montreal one day. So, so, uh, so he needs to, to be available for them, and he is. And the media just 
you know, like him so much that, you know, he, he's a big hit every time he, he comes back. And Sammy did, uh, the last house show we had in August, Sammy did more interviews, but Sammy is more English than, than, than French, uh, and he's a little shy to, to speak French, uh, but he did the last time, and he did, he did great. So, so I think, you know, he's going to put his shy away and, and, and do more the next time the, the guys are in town. It's great to keep that tradition going. You know, obviously, you know, like you said, the, the boom period almost of, of like the 1930s and even coming forth all through all those legendary guys and then coming today. It's good to see that there's still a presence, you know, to still see that there's good wrestlers from Quebec and really oh, yeah. I mean, a name, I mean, name for themselves. I just want to mention Mad Dog Vachon, when, when he when he uh he took his retirement, he actually became a huge public star, a huge personality here, uh because he was so charismatic, he was one of a kind and and he 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 was also, he, he, I mean he, he would do he would be uh doing so many different things. It would be on radio, it would be on T V, it would be a food critic on T V, it would you know, co-host talk shows. Uh, he, he did a rap song. Uh, he was invited in all the TV shows, you know, possible. He even did uh, a sketch <clears throat> on a kind of a French version of Saturday Night Live with a very young Celine Dion. I mean, when you think about it, it's just crazy. So, so, so wrestlers here have a chance to transcend the world of professional wrestling uh, if if uh, they are charismatic and if they want to, so that's really a chance that that guys like Johnny Rougeau, Yvon Robert, Dino Bravo, Maurice Vachon, Edouard Carpentier, the Rougeaus, all had uh, a chance to do and and they succeed at it. And, and and you know throughout the years we always kept that that relation with those wrestlers, and that's why they are still so remembered uh, to this day. You know, it's funny to switch from one topic to the next with you, but you've, you've written so many great books and you've covered a lot of great topics. So we'd be remiss if we didn't get right into all of the craze over women's wrestling and obviously the book you wrote about women's wrestling and the history. It's just another an unbelievable journey that you take the reader on. And, you know, and in putting a book like that together, you, you have an extensive, extensive research body that you had to uh, to dive into, but what do you think about this resurgence that women's really? I don't even know if you could say resurgence, but just emergence of women's wrestling now in 2017 it's, and these new fans taking to this so well. Oh yeah, I mean it's crazy. I feel like I don't want to say that, but I feel like the book is already outdated. <laughs> it's it's it's. I mean it's not obvious. You know it's not. Folks, you can still buy it. It's still relevant. But I mean, Very it's, relevant, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but I mean, I feel like uh, I mean I was telling that to to uh, to my co-author on this one, uh, Dan Murphy. I mean, when we finished our 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 writing process and it was sent to edition. Uh, to editing, um, I mean, Alexa Bliss was just, you know, one of many wrestlers on NXT. And, I mean, soon after the book was released, she became that two-time SmackDown, two-time Raw Women's Champion with so much charisma, you know, with so much uh, charisma. And, I mean, 
if she would have been in the book knowing all that, you know? And I mean, the May Young Classic and, and you know, uh, Abed Asuka has been, has been, you know, on NXT and, and with the streak and everything. There is so much going on. And it's, you know, evolving so fast that we feel like, I don't know, in five or ten years, we might be ready to do uh, a second edition of that book because there's going to be a lot to be talking about. Uh, and, and let alone whatever Ronda Rossi will, will, will end up doing with WWE. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's so an important, uh, not an important, but it's such a, a great time for a female wrestler to be wrestling, on, even on the independents right, you know, right now, because uh, they're signing so many of them, and they're giving women that, I don't know, five years ago, um, you wouldn't think they would be even looked at by WWE. And that's great. I mean, that's great. The Mae Young Classic was a great thing, and, and they're really – you can feel that even there, if there is, you know, some it's and misses, they're really strongly behind the division, and and they'll do whatever in their power to to uh, to make it uh, to make it big and bigger. And and I mean, you know, it's it's just uh, the book was just again. I'm talking a lot about timing here, but the the release of the book was really a great timing because it was, you know, uh, something that. Um, that, that the, there was a buzz around women wrestling. There still is, and and I mean, it was just the, the research of it was so was so fun because uh, I mean, you can hear stories and read stories about uh, how Mildred Burke. I mean, if you don't know anything about Mildred Burke and Billy Wolf, you need to read about this. This is, I mean, Billy Wolf was probably one of the most. Uh, I mean, such a bad human being. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, he was, he was in this business for money and sex. And, and sometimes I'm wondering if he wasn't more into sex than money. Uh, but I mean, this is, I mean, the, the, the research we did on this and, and every time there were, you know, we're reading about Billy Wolf, we're like, wow, you know, can you believe it did that? I mean, he, he was married to Mel Redberg is big star uh, he was sleeping around all the time with other women on his own, on, on you know, on his own roster. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's crazy the stories behind this. But the thing that fascinated me the most uh, about you know the, the whole history of women's wrestling is is that I quickly realized that women uh, had to fought their way in the ring and out of the ring. They had to prove not only to themselves that they could do that, but they had to prove to the men they could do it, to the fans that they belong there. I mean, women wrestling was banned in most of the U.S. and most of Canada for so many decades. I mean, in Montreal, it wasn't even allowed uh, back until 1985. That's crazy. That's not a long time ago, you know? And... uh it, it, it's just amazing to see that, you know, uh, a lot of them uh, really um, did, 
everything in their power to prove that, you know, women wrestling was a thing, that it was something that needed to be taken seriously. And it wasn't, it wasn't what the politicians of the time and whoever made those regulations did, you know, I mean, they, they thought that it was disgraceful to see two women going at it in the middle of the ring. And when you see a match like <clears throat> Bailey and Sasha Banks in Brooklyn, you don't see any anything wrong about it now, you know. And they can't. They, these women can thank so many women before them that you know all their 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 uh, did everything. To, to, to make sure that women wrestling uh, would survive and would keep going. And, and there are so many inspiring, uh, uh, so many stories there that are really inspirational. And, and I mean, that's something that I will, um, something that really stuck out to me when I was doing interviews and research and, and all that. So it, it's a fascinating story. Even if you're not into women's wrestling, it's still a fascinating story, so. Right, and the name of the book is Sisterhood of the Squared Circle, The History and Rise of Women's Wrestling. And I think I would fall into that class where it just, it's never been something that catches me. Uh, the stories, like the, the stuff with Mildred Burke and Billy Wolf and Fabulous Moolah, I mean, that grips me from get-go. I, that I can read for days in uh, Fabulous Moolah's book, gosh, by early 2000s, you know, shed a little bit of light into Billy Wolf a little bit, but you guys obviously blew it up and gave a little bit more detail than I think a lot of people uh, had seen. But, yeah, this phenomenon, it's unbelievable. And we do a secondary podcast with Shane Douglas um, called the Triple Threat Podcast where we, he had addressed the comments that Sasha Banks had made about, quote, stalker fans and asking for autographs in the airport. And the fans of Sasha Banks coming to her defense is to me yeah. it's fascinating because it is not just female fans. This is diehard male fans that have an absolute affinity for the wrestling of Sasha Banks, of Bailey, of Charlotte Flair, Alexa Bliss. It is amazing to see, and I guess even when you were putting this book together, I'm sure it surprised you that even since you did that, it's blown up even more since then. Oh, yeah, I mean, and, and Glow is something else that helps. You know, Glow on Netflix was such a big hit that, that it, it really, I mean, I don't know how many interviews I've, I've done about women's wrestling after Glow was, uh, was, uh, was shown on Netflix. So, I mean, it was, it was the right timing all, all around. Uh, but, I mean, uh, these girls were, um, they, they really had to, um, I mean, it's tough for a man to 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 do this thing and to to get in the business. Uh, but let me tell you, it, it. I mean, I don't know. It, you know, just for just by the interviews I, I was, you know, we, we did, and and by uh, by all the research we've done, uh, I can I can tell you that it's even tougher for women to get into this business. And and we wanted to make sure that uh, we were going to talk about all. Top, you know, all other topics that are related to women's wrestling because it's different than men's wrestling. Uh, I mean, we, we we don't and and we shouldn't, but you know, people don't see it the same way. 
we talk about sexualization of, of, of women into women's wrestling. You know, how, how do they react to that? How do they deal with that? It, it, it shouldn't be any different because, I mean, uh, we don't really talk about men's sexualization. And when you think of it, uh, you some, sometimes you just have a guy in a ring with a pair of boots and, and, and just, you know, pair of shorts, you know, that's, that's all, you know, the men, some men, you know, Randy Orton shows probably more skin than a lot of the women there, but we don't talk about Randy Orton's sexualization, you know, but we do talk about, uh, about it when it comes to, to, to women's wrestling, uh, intergender matches. That's something else we wanted to talk about. And, and, you know, uh, Everything you know, the, the the battle of the sexes, you know, and and because that that's that's a big thing, that's a big issue, especially nowadays, you know, with domestic uh, violence and all that, you know. So we wanted to have some of the girls take on it, you know. Is it is it okay to be wrestling a guy in 2017, you know? So there's all kind of different topics other than just the history of it, and 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 you know. Uh, short biographies on 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 over a hundred uh, female wrestlers. So uh, we really wanted to make sure that we got you know everything covered. It's never been done before. A book on the history of women's wrestling. It was you know a first. So we wanted to make sure that we covered all grounds. And you know uh, I think we did a pretty good job at it. Yeah, everything you do. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your fanny here, but everything that you write, I definitely I can dig. And uh, it, it, whether the topic is a women's wrestling or the history uh, of, a, of, a, of a territory or a personality profile, it's the detail, it's the research that goes into it. And I, and I got to say, I mean, is that to you the best part of the job is the research, is having to go back and watch tape or read stories or do an interview? Is that to you the best part or is it putting it together that's the best part for you? Uh, it depends. depends on the subject. Uh, but I do, I do like to dig into, uh, you know, you can lose me if I'm in front of my computer looking at old newspapers or trying to find an information in, in, uh, uh, you know, in, 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 in an archive uh, like the National Archives that we have here uh, in Montreal with, you know, all the newspapers, all the magazines and everything that I can research to. Uh, uh, sometimes I can lose, I have to stop, I can lose two hours just trying to find uh, a birth date, you know, because, okay, we don't have this girl or this man's birth date, and, and you know, I'm going to go to Ancestry.com and I'm going to try to find everything, you know, I can find sometimes, you know, it's it's a mess, but some other times I was able to find, you know, real gems uh, in there, you know, so uh, that that's a part I really, really like. Uh, the writing is always, you know, is always fun, uh, but at the same time, sometimes, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, you, you just need a break from, from writing, uh, but I could never have a break of, of doing research. So, yeah, that, that, that's a big part that, that I do like, and, uh, you know, after, after a few books now, I have, uh, um, I know more where I'm going and where to find information and how to get them, so it becomes you know easier and easier over time. Have you ever had an aha moment while you're doing a story and whether you're looking at one direction of it and you get a tip or you get some kind of point handed to you that brings you on a completely different route 
from where you were originally going? And do you look for that kind of stuff, or do you stay focused on what you're working on, you know, right in front of no, you? No, I'm always, I always keep my eyes open on anything I can find. Uh, I'd say that the most unusual thing is I'm at a football game here in Montreal. It's the CFL, the Canadian Football League, and. Uh, I, uh, I I meet with this uh, uh, this journalist and I ask him if he had any memories of of of, uh, of wrestling in Montreal, you know. And he goes, well, you know, I wasn't really a big fan, you know. I knew of wrestling, of course, but you know, it wasn't really my thing. But a friend of mine who's here, he used to work on the set of Eddie Quinn uh, when he was doing TV. So I was, wow, you know, that's awesome. So. You know, I meet with the guy, and, and we talk, and he worked on the Rougeau show uh, in the 60s and the 70s, and he tells me about Eddie Quinn being on uh, Channel 10. And I was like, no, Eddie Quinn was on Channel 2. He said, no, 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 in 1964, 63, Eddie Quinn was on Channel 10. And I didn't make anything of it, and I was like, okay, you know, you just have a bad memory, you know, but... I kept this information in the back of my mind, and I was like, hey, you know what? What if he's right? So I started digging into uh, TV guides from 63, 64, to see what kind of wrestling it was, and I started to talk to a few old-timers about that, and that led me to how Grand Prix Wrestling was actually created. Because Eddie Quinn um, did... He was right. The guy was right. Eddie Quinn did do a show on Channel 10 for a very short period of time. Uh, he was running his, his old matches. Didn't really have new matches, but he was running some of his uh, old matches because he had, he had a master tape from the shows he was doing for years and years. And, and that master tape, uh, when Eddie Quinn passed away in 1964, uh, was given to Yvonne Robert, because Yvonne Robert tried to promote in Montreal uh, after Eddie Quinn passed away. And um, Johnny Rougeau took that tape, went to Channel 10, and sold them that, you know, wrestling should be back on TV with an uh, original show and everything. And he used that master tape to, to show them, you know, that, you know, uh, wrestling could be a thing again. And, uh, and they went with the idea, and Johnny Rougeau, who was hired by Yvonne Robert when Robert, you know, tried to promote, didn't do that with Yvonne Robert. He, he kind of stole the tape from Yvonne Robert and didn't include Robert in anything uh, for his promotion. So Robert was really upset at Rougeau. They had a falling out. And a few years later, that's why Yvonne Robert went to Minneapolis and talked to the Vachons, so he wanted Maurice and Paul to, to come to Montreal and open a promotion with him and Edward Carpati. All, all that because I was at a football game and talked to a guy <laughs> and, who told me a story that I didn't even believe and that I you know, decided to, to dig a little more into. So you never know what you're going to find. <laughs> No, exa yeah, exactly. You never know. You basically the way you get a story like that. I think if you look behind a milk carton in a deli or something, you might be able to dig up some kind of history about uh, about it, wrestling. That's that's phenomenal. It, it was funny because I remember that night. You know, after I had spoken to everyone, I really got you know a grip of the story. I was so 
tired. I was just dead. I called Bertrand and I said, Bertrand, open your computer, just type whatever I'm going to tell you right now. I'm too tired to type it myself and I'm going to bed after that and we'll talk tomorrow. And that's exactly what we did. <laughs> so, yeah, obviously you and Bertrand, I mean, you guys are a great team. You know, you're like, uh, you know, the, you're the Batman and Robin of, uh, of Canadian wrestling history. But oh, would totally you say, Batman. Like, <laughs> I was going to say, so you guys, I mean, do you bounce ideas off each other just freely, or is it something where you guys do have like a sit-down brain trust meeting? It's like, we got to explore this, we got to do that, or do you just go spur the moment, like you said, you called him to relay that story. Do you guys just have impromptu, you know, uh, summits on what you guys want to do next or what you want to focus on next when you're working on a project? Well, well, since we released the first book, we've been touring in, in Quebec, you know, because we, we are involved on, on the independent scene here in Quebec for many, many years. Bertrand, even before I, I started uh, getting involved. So <laughs> we know everybody here, and we are welcome pretty much everywhere to come and sell the book uh, and, and other stuff that we're saying about Quebec wrestling's history. So, I mean, we are together a lot, you know. Uh, I mean, Bertrand was making uh, a remark the other day that he sees me sometimes more often than his girlfriend. So, uh, I mean, uh, uh, since we're a lot together, you know, we always bounce ideas, you know, from each other. And, and you know, w when one or the other has, you know, like the Maurice Vachon thing, you know, we were together at the Montreal Book Fair, and we just look at each other and say, hey, you know, what about a book? And Bertrand was like, hey, that's a great idea. And you know, we pitched it right away. So, uh, I, I mean, we, we, we pretty much think alike uh, or, or pretty much know, you know, what kind of book could, uh, could be a, a good one, could be some, something that we, uh, we would like to work on. Uh, I mean, you know, as he was writing the, the Patterson book, uh, that's when, you know, I went with, with, with Dan Murphy to write Sisterhood of the Squared Circle. But uh, besides that, you know, we, we uh, it, it, it's... Mad Dog Vachon is probably not the last uh, uh, team effort that that uh, team effort that that me and Bertrand will uh, will will put together because uh, we we have other uh, other project coming up and uh, nothing that we can unfortunately talk right now. But uh, uh, that that's not the last you'll see of of uh, Bertrand and I uh, working together. Now, as I start to wind it down a bit here, I have to ask, just because of the sisterhood of the squared circle and kind of just the where we're headed in this women's revolution of wrestling, you think that a main event of WrestleMania will ever happen? Is it one of those sooner rather than later things, or is it just never going to happen? It will happen if Ronda Rousey is there. To me, she's the only one. Okay, hold on. As long as Vince McMahon will have the last say on whoever's main eventing WrestleMania, to me, Ronda Rousey is the only one who can actually convince Vince to put a women's match on top because she's a proven draw. She had drawn, you know, she had, you know, she drew a million, a million and a half people on pay-per-view for UFC, and those numbers, you know. Those numbers are, are, you know, mean something to, uh, mean something to Vince. Um, so, so I don't know. Is it going to be Ronda and Stephanie McMahon or Ronda and Charlotte Flair? 
I would rather see Charlotte does because I think from the two, you know, she would have the the, the best match. Uh, but Stephanie McMahon comes with a lot of attention as well. So, uh, uh, but you know, still Charlotte has the flair name, which which would which which means something too. So, uh, I would rather see Ronda and and Charlotte. Uh, and you know, to me, that would be my pick uh, to to main event one day WrestleMania. Is it going to happen? I don't know. But if it has a chance to happen, to me, it has to be with Ronda. Uh, you know, if if it never happens, and and you know, uh, whenever Vince will will step down and and Hunter and stuff will take over, uh, that's another story. But you know, as long as Vince is there, I, I mean, I can be wrong, but I don't see it any differently. Now, as far as your concern, obviously we talked about some of your favorite wrestlers, and obviously we talked about Dino Bravo a lot. <laughs> Do you have any other wrestlers, maybe even more current wrestlers, that you kind of think of as, as favorites? Um, well, obviously Kevin, uh, Kevin Owens. It's hard for me not to 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 to, to put him there. Uh, but besides that, besides him. Um, who would be my favorite right now? That's a good question. Um, I do. I mean, maybe I will surprise people, but I do like John Cena a lot. I mean, you know, as as much as people have said over the years, I think John Cena has proven everybody wrong, including myself at a certain, you know, moment in time. Uh, but But... To see him wrestle with the likes of Kevin and AJ, uh, I mean, I, I just think, and seeing Cena doing moves and stuff that he didn't do before, and, and hearing those guys talk about how Cena is great, as just making me have more respect than I already had uh, for the guy. And, and, I mean, usually Cena delivers big time, and, and we saw it just recently with Roman Reigns, you know, I mean, they had a great match at No Mercy, and, and usually Cena, you know, really delivers, and, and he's coming, you know, I mean, he's becoming a bigger Hollywood star, something that people were doubting to, so, um, I mean, Cena, I like him a lot, Brock is, is a favorite of mine as well, uh, we don't see him uh, enough, but uh, Brock is another, guy, is another guy I really enjoy, uh, watching, um, yeah, uh, I would say those two. I mean, it's maybe obvious choice for for um, for for certain people, but uh, uh, I don't know. I enjoy what I mean. I enjoy a lot of them. Uh, I enjoy guys on D and D's as well. You know, I could never get enough of uh, of the Young Bucks, of Kenny Omega, of of Okada, uh, but in WWE. Uh, you know, anytime Cena and, and Lesnar are there, uh, something special happens, especially since both of them have a, a part-time almost uh, kind of schedule. Uh, so, so it's, you know, it's matches that, that you, want, you don't want to miss. Now, you've been watching wrestling for a long time. You're a historian. You've studied the business. You've, you know, you've done so many things a part of the business. Do you have some favorite matches looking back that really stick out in your head? Would maybe a Jacques versus Pierre retirement match, things like that. Do you have favorite matches or favorite moments? 
Um, yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, as a kid, I could never get enough of WrestleMania 3. Uh, I think I must have ran that tape uh, at least 10 times when I was a kid. Uh, and, and, you know, Ogun and Andre and Savage and Steamboat, uh, you know, were the matches that, you know, uh, got more of my attention for, for obvious reasons. Um, I was live in Toronto at WrestleMania 18 when The Rock and, and Ogun faced off. Uh, and I mean that was just amazing. The, the the atmosphere in in the stadium in the Skydome at the time was just amazing. I remember this for the rest of my life. And I was also in New York for a Ring of Honor show for a match between Samoa Joe and Kenta Kobashi that I will remember forever. Uh, I mean, you know, it was the I mean. The live match of Hogan, I mean, Hogan and The Rock was not something, you know, was not a great work rate match, obviously not, uh, but the atmosphere was great. Kobashi and Joe was such, probably the best match live I've ever seen. And even if the crowd wasn't anything like the Skydome crowd, it was a unique atmosphere, a unique ambience, and it was just great to be there live. And, uh, and, 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 you know, even on the DVD, that's a great thing that Ring of Honor did. Uh, they didn't put any commentary on the match. So you can feel the vibe that was happening there. And, you know, I get, you know, uh, you know, just thinking about it, you know, I still, <laughs> still get uh, goosebumps, you know. So, uh, I mean, probably those would be, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot. You know, I, but these 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 one, <clears throat> these are the ones that comes on on that come on on top of my head. Awesome Joe Kobashi match in New York City. It was uh, five star rated by Dave Meltzer, which uh, obviously is saying something. But awesome match, just absolutely love it. So that's a good one that you pulled out there. That's I like that. I was actually at the show the next day when they had the tag match uh, with Joe and Kobashi tag match in the main event. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have that match on DVD, but uh, I had to uh, go back to Montreal at one point. <laughs> <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Um, now, as far as your books and stuff, is there a favorite book that you've written or a favorite part of of, the, of a book that you've written, something that really stuck with you? Actually, uh, and it's not because it's just the book that I, we just released, but to me, Maurice, uh, Mad Dog's book is, is really the one that, m- my favorite book. Uh, I mean, it's, it's such a great story. Uh, I mean, to read, to, to, to write about, um, you know, both Maurice, the man, and Mad Dog, the wrestler, and, uh, you know, his, his childhood was, you know, that was so unique, and, and all the, the, you know, every time he, he, he fell, he was always getting back up. And, and to me, that's, that's the best book I've ever been part of. Uh, and, and it's not a knock on, on the other book I've written. Of course not. But to me, that's really my favorite. Um, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm very hard with myself, with the work I do. And I cannot find, almost cannot find anything wrong with that book, according to me, of course. 
which in the other work uh, we did, it's, it's different work, right? It's, it's short biographies. It's not the same, uh, the same pattern. Um, and, uh, but, but it was the first biography that I was actually uh, writing, and, and I really, really liked it. And, and to me, that's really my favorite book. And the books, and we'll go over them again here. Of course, we mentioned Sisterhood of the Squared Circle. We mentioned Mad Dogs, Midgets, and Screwjobs. And we mentioned the Mad Dog, that, uh, Mad Dog, the Maurice Vachon story, which is now in English, and you can get that on Amazon. And, Pat, we're going to give you the big uh, plug at the end here. But i got to ask you this. And when we ask the wrestlers the question if it's their legacy or whether you know, where they see themselves in five years, do they still be in the business, blah, blah, blah. For you, I want to ask you about your books. And as a writer and somebody that is putting something down that's going to be read forever, no matter what, even if it's changed into, uh, you know, we're banging stuff back into stone in, in a thousand years, we could still be reading your books. What do you want fans to take away from those books when they close it, when they're done, when they finish reading and they see your name on the quote, on the marquee on the front of the book? What do you want the fans to take away from it after they're done? Well, I hope they will. Um... I hope they will recognize the work that we put in to 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 leave something to 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 future generations. That that was that was the idea be, behind the Montreal book. Guys were not getting any younger, and you know uh, we wanted to be able to sit with them and to interview them and getting their stories because for so many years. Those guys, you know, lived in a kayfabe era where you didn't talk about uh, who got you in this territory or, you know, uh, who you were friends with and, and all that, you know. And, and now we were in, in 2009 when we started <clears throat> working on the Montreal book. And it was, you know, an era where guys were, even the old, old, old timers were, were more open to talk about all that. And I mean, it didn't take long for guys like Carpentier to pass away, to for Mad Dog to pass away, for Hanschmidt, for Ivan Koloff, for all these guys, uh, and were able to secure their legacy and their stories because you know once they're once they're done, they're taking all those stories with them and 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 you know so so, so for us and and that's really the spirit in you know in which me and Bertrand you know, approach every book is we want to make sure that we leave something to future generation at a time where we were able to speak with those guys and to talk with them and to get them to, to talk about their experience and their career. And, and I mean, looking back, <clears throat> I wish I would have started that even earlier on. I wish I would have sat down with a guy like Killer Kowalski. I wish I would have sat down with Lutez. And 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 Dino Bravo and and all those guys who, who, who passed away before we started working on on, on the book. So uh, I, I just hope that's what people will 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 see in, in in the work that we put in. We take a lot of pride of of you know on, on what we're doing, and and you know we we hope that it's gonna it's gonna uh, get future generation. Uh, interested into whatever subject we wrote, whether it's a Montreal, you know, maybe in 20 years from now, 
uh, a new kid from Montreal will be on top of WWE, and he won't be, uh, he, he won't know anything about, you know, he will, he, he will not be here for anything like the Vachon brothers and the Leduc brothers and the Rougeau brothers even, but this book will tell him all about it, and, and hopefully, you know, that will get him, that will get future generation to be interested into uh, uh, historical subjects like this. That's awesome. Uh, I really hope everybody just takes this and, and runs to uh, their 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 book purchaser online, and uh, they they get these books. And that's where I'm going to turn it over to you here. Please share with us where we can get the books, where we can find any more information about you, and uh, whatever else you've got going on in the world, and of course where the listeners can find everything in the world of Pat LaProd. Well, uh, all the books, uh, Matt Dice, Mentors, and Screwjobs, Sisterhood of the Sword Circle, uh, Accepted, a biography of Pat Patterson by my good friend, Bertrand Bear, and uh, Mad Dog, the Maurice Vachon story, are available on any Amazon's uh, platforms. Uh, we also have DVDs on the best of Quebec wrestling, uh, four volumes, four different DVDs. Uh, that are selling on RF video as well as iSpots.com. Uh, we, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm working with HBO and WWE on a documentary on Andre the Giant, uh, which will come up, uh, come out in 2018. I'm one of the associate producers on uh, the documentary. It's, it's going to be very, very cool to see. Uh, I also start for the people in Quebec. Who, uh, who are listening to us, if there's any, uh, I'm going to be uh, one of the two uh, uh, announcers on a brand new WWE show here in Quebec. The first time WWE will be in French in Quebec in 19 years. So I'm going to be one of the two announcers on the show. Uh, and I mean, you can find, you know, all of our appearances in, in in Canada or in Montreal or in the U.S., we do a bunch of conventions like Cauliflower Alley Club, uh, the Hall of Fame in, in Waterloo, <clears throat> Iowa. I'm losing my voice, guys. I mean, that's that's. I'm, I'm getting into, I'm transforming into that big voice of my dog Vasan. I think <clears throat> it's funny, and and uh, so you can find all that and more on uh, my social medias. Um, Pat Laprade on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you want to see more about uh, the history of uh, wrestling in Montreal, the words of the year, and the Quebec Wrestling Hall of Fame that I take care of, uh, you can go on uh, quebecwrestling.ca. Well, I'm going to take a line from somebody from Quebec's uh, handbook here. And uh, when you, you, you go this song with Two Man Power Trip, we always get our man in the end, so we uh, we like to thank you for coming on, and we appreciate you giving us all this time. But uh, it's been an absolute thrill for both of us to go through his go through the entire history of of wrestling with you, and we uh, we really appreciate the time. And uh, maybe get a lozenge, you know, maybe some herbal tea, something like that, and you'll that voice will be just fine tomorrow. <laughs> Thanks, guys, and uh, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.